Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're multitasking. But what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. So multitask right now. Get your quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Friday edition of Pro Football Talk Live, and it was another one of those mornings where we had a little gremlin floating around inside the microphone capability. Big Cat almost got the chance to take the show over, and I'm concerned that if he had, he never would have given up the reins. So I've decided to put him on ice, maybe for the next two hours. We'll see when we bring him in, but it is Pro Football Talk Live. And for May 15, in an offseason with no OTAs, no mini camps. Not a whole lot to talk about. There is a lot to talk about, thanks to some of the folks who have been doing some talking when maybe they shouldn't. And speaking of Big Cat, there he is, fresh with his French press. Now, have you already done the French press, or are you saving that for the right strategic moment during the show? You tell me, Mike. Look at the French press. It has not been pressed yet. I would have started this show uh, speaking to my fans, speaking to America and the U.K. and Ireland and saying, I threw seven interceptions in my video game last night, and I have no one to blame but myself. I was ready to go for an hour and a half talking solely about my job as a head coach at Texas Tech. I was ready for it. That's fine. You robbed America. Let's get into whatever you want to talk about. Well, yeah, Doug Duggerton will have to wait, although we do have a draft coming up in about an hour and a half that's inspired sort of by your adventures in college football or specifically college football video games. We're going to draft the all-time units, offensive defenses, that we would have loved to coach or would love to coach maybe in a video game. Uh, Not a video game, but reality for the National Football League and a delicate situation without question for the Steelers and for the league office. James Harrison, former Steelers linebacker, appearing on a Barstool podcast. You guys causing trouble again for the NFL. Going Deep is the name of the podcast. Here is James Harrison talking about a 2010 fine that was imposed upon him for an illegal hit on Browns receiver Muhammad Massaquoi and what Coach Mike Tomlin did after that fine was levied against Harrison. The most you've ever been fined in one game? One game was 75. Ooh, 
Is uh, that the master quad hit? Yeah. Dude, how you gonna find me setting for the dude? Oh, listen, 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 listen. Um, listen, everything I love on my daddy's grave. I hit that man with about max 50% of what I had. And I just hit him because I wanted him to let loose of the ball. If I had knew they was gonna find me 75,000, I would have tried to kill him. <laughs> dude, I'm telling you. Right. 75? And people start- And I ain't gonna lie to you. I ain't gonna lie to you. But that happened, right? And uh, the gist thing Mike Tonley ever did, he handed me an envelope after that. Yeah, he handed me an envelope, and James Harrison said, I won't say what was in it, but he handed me an envelope. So we reached out to the league office. We reached out to the Steelers. What comment, if any, does the league and does the team have about something that would have been a violation of the rules? Look, if a guy gets fined, you can't pay that fine. You can't reward a guy for legal hits or illegal hits. The bounty scandal two years later proved that conclusively. Art Rooney II issuing this statement. I'm very certain nothing like this ever happened. I have no idea why James would make a comment like this, but there is simply no basis for believing anything like this. Big Cat, let's discuss this. I would like to see what Mike Tomlin has to say about it. Unless Art Rooney II was part of the conversation between Harrison and Tomlin, how does Rooney know one way or the other? I want a statement from Tomlin, not from Rooney. I I appreciate the fact that Rooney went on the record, and at the time, Rooney went on the record and said he thought the hit for which Harrison was fined was legal. But now Rooney's on the record saying there's no basis for it. Let's hear what Tomlin has to say. Okay, so uh, break this down for me, Mike. First of all, shout out to... uh, the Going Deep podcast, Willie Colon and Stephen Shea, formerly the Surf and Turf podcast, for getting this story. Great story to get in a time when there are no sports. Mike, is it the hypocrisy if the NFL doesn't do anything? Because I've always been of the mindset that this type of stuff happens in every single locker room in the NFL. And that was why the Bounty Gate thing seemed uh, a little ridiculous at the time because, yes, you do you, I would prefer them not to do this. I'd prefer there not to be bounties on players' heads. But to say this doesn't happen between players, and of course when coaches get involved, it's a little bit of a different situation. But to 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 go into an NFL locker room and not expect to have this happen off of big hits, big plays, whatever you want to call it, you would be absolutely naive and foolish. So is it that the NFL has to act and and investigate to the lengths that they did the Saints and Sean Payton being suspended for a year? Or is it that this should never happen ever because we need to take this out of the sport? Where do you land on this? Here's how I think the NFL handles it. If this is something that had happened post-bounty scandal in 2012, the NFL would have done something about it because I think the message to all teams at the time the NFL imposed over-the-top penalties on Coach Sean Payton, on defensive coordinator Greg Williams, on players. The player suspensions eventually were eradicated by former Commissioner Paul Tagliabu. The message was no more of this stuff, no more bounties, no more payment for legal hits, no more payment for illegal hits. We're not going to do this. We are now sensitive to health and safety. This doesn't mesh with health and safety, rewarding players for incapacitating opponents. The fact that it happened before the bounty scandal 
puts it, in my mind, Big Cat, into the category of things the NFL doesn't want to know about. The NFL didn't go down the rabbit hole of all the various other bounty scandals we became aware of, especially wherever Greg Williams had been before he was with the Saints. The NFL didn't want to do that. The NFL didn't want to disclose to the world that there's an inherently corrupt organization right under its nose where every team is doing this in some form or fashion. And actually, you could make the argument that if what Harrison's saying is the truth, and look, I I haven't, and I got to go back and do the research and see if he's got an axe to grind with Mike Tomlin. This didn't come off like a disgruntled employee telling on his former boss. He appreciates him. He just is oblivious to the fact that it may create a problem, right? So I I think it's a I mean, do you first of all, let's establish that. Well, this doesn't seem like somebody who's trying to blow the whistle on Tomlin. This is somebody who's applauding Tomlin, correct? Yes, absolutely correct. It's the exact opposite of blowing the whistle. I think James Harrison is saying that Mike Tomlin is a player's coach, that is a guy who is in tune with the locker room and would go up to a player like that afterwards, not because, hey, good hit, because it was a penalty. So not a good hit, way to go, here's money. It was a, you're about to get fined. I'm going to cover some of that fine. That's a player's coach situation. So, yes, I completely agree. He's not whistleblowing on Mike Tomlin. He's instead saying Mike Tomlin is a great coach and knows how to take care of his players. Now, you could argue that what happened here, if it did happen, is worse than what happened in the Saints case because there was no evidence in the Saints case that players were being rewarded for illegal hits that incapacitated opponents. The idea was there was an incentive to go out there and within the confines of the rules, hit your opponent so aggressively, so hard, so violently, the opponent couldn't continue. You had to tap out and leave the game, but not with an illegal hit. That was a point we made over and over again back in 2012. This isn't a Tanya Harding, Jeff Galuli situation where you're trying to commit a criminal act that keeps a guy from playing. This is playing the game within the confines of the rules in a way that causes your opponent to not be able to continue. In this case, you've got the possibility that the head coach rewarded slash compensated a player who committed a violation of the rules, paying him for an illegal hit. And here's the rationalization for it, I think, Big Cat. When you consider that at the time, both Mike Tomlin and Art Rooney II came out and said this was a legal hit. And this was at a time when the NFL teams were getting their arms around the reality that hits that used to be okay aren't going to be okay. This was the day in October of 2010 when it was James Harrison hitting Muhammad Massaquai, Brandon Merriweather hitting Todd Heap, and Dante Robinson hitting Deshaun Jackson. All in bang, bang, bang fashion, 15 minutes of real time. That's when we all kind of said, whoa, these hits to the head of players who are in the process of catching passes have to end. At the time, though, there were coaches and owners who said, wait a minute, why does this have to end? This is legal. So my point is, I could see Mike Tomlin justifying compensating James Harrison for the fine if Tomlin genuinely believes that the fine was inappropriate. I disagree with this fine. They've screwed my player. I'm giving my player the money that he lost because of this fine. And again, Harrison didn't say what he received, but I'm giving my player an envelope, an envelope, because he got screwed. And I believe he got screwed. And my boss believes he got screwed. So... It's plausible to me that it happened when we consider the specific circumstances that were around the sport at the time and the attitudes of especially guys like Mike Tomlin as the NFL was getting itself comfortable with eradicating these kinds of hits from the game. And and you said it at the top, the fact that it happened before Bounty Gate and the league changing everything and trying to, to take this out of the game, I think 
makes a, a huge difference when we're, when we're talking about what the league will do, whether they'll investigate. If this was a story from James Harrison from three years ago, it's a totally different ball game for Mike Tomlin because if a coach gets caught doing this today, it is all on the coach for doing something that they know will get them in trouble. Again, I think this happens in every locker room, and I think it continues to happen, and I think that it will happen for the rest of the time because it's no different than if you're watching right now a little crossover for you, Mike, you know, the last dance and players playing cards on a plane and players, you know, having a kitty in the locker room where they all pool their money together and they find each other. This is going to happen forever. But when the coach gets involved, it's a little different. And because this was pre-Bounty Gate, I think Mike Tomlin is going to escape any type of real investigation here. If it were in the last couple of years, then the NFL has to react because of what Sean Payton said. They went after him. They took away a year's salary of, you know, of him. They took away his job for an entire year to not do something similar. If they, if someone is found to be guilty would be crazy. Yeah. And Sean Payton and Greg Williams were proverbially, not literally the heads on a pike at the city gates to remind anyone who may dare to do this in the future of what will happen to you. And at the time, and the reason why the players ultimately French press were vindicated by this, Paul Tagliabue, who was assigned the responsibility for resolving the players' appeals of their suspensions, he said, look, this isn't how you deal with a cultural issue. You deal with a cultural issue by telling all teams, we got a problem here. It's changing now. And moving forward, anybody who violates this is going to get hammered. You don't just pick the first team that you see that's violating a rule that everyone's violating and say we're going to make an example out of them to scare everyone else straight. That's why Sean Payton's upset. He was the guy who was made the example out of, and Payton isn't happy about what's happened now. And Peyton believes, I think rightfully so, that nothing is going to happen with this situation. Peyton appeared yesterday on 105.7 The Fan in Baltimore with Jason Lock and Fora. Here's Sean Peyton discussing these new allegations. If people are waiting for the league to investigate that, they shouldn't hold their breath. Uh, I, I think, you know, what took place with us back in 2011 in so many ways was a sham. Um, and, and yet there wasn't a lot we could do with it. You know, the players were vindicated, but from a from a league or a coaching standpoint there's no union there's no representation but i would be i would be shocked if uh, uh that that'll be something that's tucked away uh, or under the rug at park avenue they'll look into it briefly listen uh, don't get me started on that <laughs> I, 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 we're gonna get I you back in the doghouse in salary and in in yeah. honestly it was it was uh it was something that, you know, honestly, something I'll never, I'll never truly get over because I know how it was handled and how it was run and, and how it, uh, and the reasons behind it. And, uh, that's, that's, that's just the truth. I love Sean Payton because he will not mince words. He will not play politics. He will tell you what he believes. He will call it like he sees it. And he's daring the NFL to do something about his comments. And how could the NFL punish him for saying what he said yesterday while not investigating what James Harrison said. So Peyton has put them in check, possibly checkmate, because if they do lash out against him, they can't lash out. Or what if they lash out against him, they can't look the other way on the James Harrison, Mike Tomlin thing. It's one or the other. It can't be both or whatever I'm trying to say. They know who we mean. The point is Peyton is willing to say what he believes, and I love that comment. And he's right. They're not going to investigate. The league declined comment when we asked them about it yesterday. Now, that doesn't mean they're not doing anything about it behind the scenes, 
But this is something that they just want to go away, and it's coming at the worst possible time, Big Cat, because nothing else is going on, so people are going to be chasing this story. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's something that, you know, Mike Florio and his little uh, army of narcs are going to be hot on the case for a while. That's true. That's true. This is going to be a story that you're going to watch. And you should. This is why we need you, because there's hypocrisy that is going that is taking place right now. And Sean Payton is not wrong to say that they're going to just not investigate. And he's not wrong to, to outright say, I will never get over this and what they how they handled it is egregious, and it's something that probably Sean Payton should remind people of more when, when it comes to like his public appearances and whatever he's doing. He should probably let people know more that what happened wasn't right, and he's still not over it, because as time goes by, people will forget that he even missed a year. So I'm, I'm on Sean Payton's side here. I'm on your side, Mike Florio. I do not think the NFL will do anything because it was pre-Bounty Gate, and at the end of the day, it's probably going to be a simple conversation with Mike Tomlin. Mike Tomlin will say no. They'll say, okay, cool, and then they'll move on. Don't they talk to James Harrison, though? Don't they bring him in? Shouldn't they bring him in and sit him down and say, what are you talking about here? How much money did he give you? Is this true? Did you mean it? And maybe James Harrison will clam up now that he realized oh. he stepped right into it. But – I just think that when we consider the things that the league will investigate and investigate and investigate some more that have nothing to do with football per se, why would you not look into this? Now, again, we've already answered that question. The NFL doesn't want to go back and pick at that scar of pre-Bounty Gate mindset in the NFL as everyone was getting comfortable with reluctantly the idea that there are certain hits that weren't going to be allowed anymore. Let me give you an example, Big Cat, to properly understand the context here. The following year, 2011, Ryan Clark was fined $40,000 for an illegal helmet-to-helmet hit on a defenseless player. And what Clark said was Mike Tomlin told him that it was a clean hit, and Tomlin used the hit in the film room as an example of, of a good hit. So, and I remember at the time saying, if you're only going to find the players and not find the coaches, the coaches aren't going to tell the players to not do this because the money isn't coming out of the coach's pocket. Unless, of course, the coach is giving the players an envelope when it happens. Coach wants to win games. And I think it took time for guys like Tomlin to realize that this specific weapon was being removed from the arsenal, the intimidation factor, the brutality that comes from going in hot helmet down on a guy who's catching the football. Go back and watch any game from the 70s, 80s, or 90s on YouTube, and you'll see exactly the kind of hits that are now forbidden. So it's not like turning on a light. You, It takes time for the people in the game to realize this isn't allowed anymore, and I think it took Mike Tomlin some time, and maybe along the way, Big Cat, he decided I'm going to pay back at least one of my players' fines. Let me ask you this, Mike. Were these hits, the James Harrison and the Ryan Clark that you just mentioned, were they penalties on the field? You know, I don't know that because there's been such a disconnect between what happens right. in real time and what happens when the league office looks at it. But let's remember again the context. It was in 2009, October, 
when Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the game, and D. Smith, the head of the union, were called to a congressional subcommittee hearing, and Congress put the fear of God into them that it's time to wake up to the dangers of concussions. The following October, we had those three hits I mentioned. Bang, bang, bang happened in 15 minutes of real time. We ripped up the outline for Football Night in America. It was the dominant topic of the night. I remember vividly, Tony Dungy and Rodney Harrison were great on what these hits mean and how you get guys to stop. Rodney said, hey, fines don't matter. It's a cost of doing business. I used to set money aside for fines. Only if you suspend me am I going to stop doing it. I mean, it was a great conversation. It set the narrative for the coming week as people got their arms around this. The bottom line is the officials were learning along with everyone else, and they were missing some of these because a lot of these officials spent their whole life seeing these hits. There's there's a clip from a game in the mid-'70s where Mel Blunt does a pile driver on Cliff Branch, and an official just walks into the into the scene nonchalantly and picks the ball up and sets it for the next down. I mean, for the longest time, this kind of stuff was perfectly acceptable in the NFL. So it took the it took the participants a little while to get used to the new reality. I don't think that that hit was a penalty because I'm looking, you know, at the replay right there. I don't I don't see a penalty flag, and it looks like they're at the same point in the field on the next play. So that even speaks more to Mike Tomlin's out here. He has an out with it being pre-Bounty Gate. He has an out with just outright denying it if he would like to. And then he has an out, out by saying, I disagreed with the league's ruling here. So it's not a situation where James Harrison gets a 15-yard penalty on the field and then Mike Tomlin says, good job, man. We'll take those 15-yard penalties if you can intimidate the opponent. That's a different conversation. He's simply saying... That was a hit that I thought was legal. They obviously later on didn't. I'm going to help you out with the fine. All right. Well, since we're tooling around in Dr. Emmett Brown's DeLorean this morning, we're going to set the clock to 2018 from 2010. And we're going to talk about what did or didn't happen between the Seahawks and the Browns regarding a certain quarterback named Russell Wilson and a certain first overall pick in the draft. Where did this come from? What does it mean? And what happens from here between the Seahawks and Russell Wilson? We'll discuss that next on Pro Football Talk Live. Interesting developments over the past 24 hours as it relates to something that Chris Sims casually mentioned during an episode of PFTOT last week when we were discussing players that are untouchable from a trade standpoint. And that all came up because the Bengals insist there was no way, no how. They were giving up the number one overall pick. They wanted Joe Burrow, which is ludicrous because he's not yet untouchable. We agreed that Patrick Mahomes is. Lamar Jackson is. Aaron Donald likely is. Aaron Rodgers, because of his contract this year, is. And we talked about Russell Wilson. And Chris Sims mentioned that prior to the 2018 draft, there was a conversation between the Seahawks and the Browns about a possible trade of Wilson to Cleveland for the number one overall pick in the draft. And I didn't think anything of it at the time, but as the past seven days unfolded, reporters were hearing what he had to say, people were picking it up, and more importantly, and here's how it hit my radar screen yesterday, Big Cat, people who are in the know as to what did or didn't happen were starting to be contacted by reporters who were chasing the story. So I started to hear from these people saying, what the hell did you guys say? 
So it's like, I, I don't know. I found the clip. I passed it around. And we then, you know, and this is something that fell into our lap. I want people to understand. We're not out there trying to shake the trees for some sort of a hot take that we can use to fuel a slow news cycle. And maybe we should have. But this is something that just fell out of the sky. And I'm not going to ignore it when it falls out of the sky. And Big Cat, the information I got yesterday tells me there was a conversation. There was a conceptual discussion between the Seahawks and the Browns regarding a Russell Wilson trade. And it comes down to this. The debate, and we've talked about this before, the debate that a team will necessarily have when it comes to paying a huge amount of money to a quarterback. At what point do you say, I'd rather have young, cheap players? Even if it's the first overall pick in the draft, it's going to cost me a hell of a lot less. The four-year contract is going to cost me less than one-year average with the deal that this player wants. That's why a team would consider it. And when you look at the Seahawks' greatest success of the last decade, when did it happen? When Russell yeah. Wilson was working under his rookie contract. I, can I say, Mike, that I actually, if I were Russell Wilson, I would be happy that this actually happened. And that's simply because that means that the organization I play for is always thinking in a smart way. And that I, I think they made the right decision because Russell Wilson is a top five, top three quarterback in the NFL, and it's hard to find a guy like that. They don't grow on trees. But if you are a fan of the Seahawks and you see this news, you should be happy, not mad, because at the end of the day, if, when, when you're rooting for your team, you want your front office, you want your organization to always try to think ahead and how they can figure out a way to stay competitive year in and year out. Did they get close to doing this? Probably not. But the fact that they picked up a phone and did their due diligence and, and, and looked around and just weighed all their options is exactly what I'd want them to do if I were a fan of the Seahawks. And if you're Russell Wilson, it's exactly what I'd want the tone to be in the organization that they will always look to everywhere, to every single place, to every single avenue when it comes to trade, free agency, draft, whatever it may be, to make the team better. So this is a, a, a tricky situation where people could probably take it the wrong way, but I see this as nothing more than the Seahawks doing a great job of at least seeing. Because what happens, Mike? What happens if you call up and someone offers you, I don't even know what the max is, but they offer you three, four picks, first-round picks for Russell Wilson? I'm not, I, again, I'm not saying that you should do it because Russell Wilson is that good and you probably should keep him on your team. But it's worth exploring that option and it's worth at least hearing someone say it. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And it is smart to always be thinking about what you can do with the current assets you have and how you can maximize those assets in the future. And when you have that much money devoted to one player, it's at least worth considering what else you could do, especially when at the time the Seahawks knew they were a year away from giving Russell Wilson what still is the richest contract in league history. And before he signed that contract and he imposed a deadline on them, and usually these artificial deadlines don't work, Russell set the deadline and the team complied with it, which the team probably resents at some level because these teams like to be the ones who dictate to the players, not the other way around. Wilson was on Jimmy Fallon, and I remember last year, Sims and I were laughing about it, when Fallon asks Wilson about the possibility of being the highest-paid player in the NFL. That doesn't seem like something that falls naturally into Jimmy Fallon's range of expertise or things he would give a crap about, right? And, and so Wilson knew what he was doing, and the fact that there's a no-trade clause in his contract, we should not view that as some sort of an accidental blip. Wilson and his agent wanted to be sure that they couldn't do this to him 
without him being involved in the process. And, you know, the the idea that he could be traded in the future and there are people who believe it could still happen and Seahawks fans will say, he's got a no trade clause. It can't happen. It's like, folks, just because he has a no trade clause doesn't mean he can't be traded. He can veto any trade. If it's a trade he likes, he can say, I'll waive my no trade clause if you're trading me to this team, this team, or this team. And teams that I think it makes sense to watch, the Raiders, because of John Gruden's perpetual love for quarterbacks, and also he could talk to this one without standing on a step stool, uh, the Cowboys, who are going to have to pay somebody a ton of money. If I got to pay Dak Prescott a ton of money, I'd rather pay that money to a more proven commodity than Russell Wilson. We love you, Dak, but it's the truth. And then maybe the Saints post Drew Brees. The problem, though, is the Saints are going to have to move on next year, most likely without Brees. You can't trade Russell Wilson in 2021. The cap hit would be too big for the Seahawks. This is something that would happen, if at all, in 2022 or 2023 as he gets closer to that next big contract. And the reason that Wilson is able to drive such a hard bargain, you know, he does short-term deals, four-year extensions. His agent, Mark Rogers, is not a football agent. So he doesn't have all these tentacles and relationships he needs to worry about where if you push too hard with this client, they're going to get you with that client. And you have to be sensitive to having that right tone, having that right atmosphere with all the people you negotiate with. From Roger's perspective, I got one guy I negotiate on behalf of, and I'm going to get him the best possible deal. And if you don't like it, tough crap. And that's one of the reasons, I think, why the Seahawks would at least entertain the possibility of getting a quarterback who's represented by someone that they can maybe exert a little more leverage over because that guy represents five other players on their team. All right. Well, that was a no sarcasm, great wrinkle from you, Mike Florio. I actually really enjoy when you drop those knowledge bombs because I didn't realize that dynamic was at play. The other reason that Russell Wilson can can dictate the terms is he's really, 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 really good at football. And get and, and like I said at the start, those guys don't grow on trees. And every single franchise in the NFL is constantly looking for their Russell Wilson. And if you actually did a list of all the quarterbacks, you know, which I'm sure we will do in a couple of weeks because there's still no sports, we would we would probably put Russell Wilson in that two, three, four slot. And you would say to yourself, how many teams would trade, the, you know, mortgage the future for a guy like Russell Wilson today? And guess what? The list is, I don't know, 25 deep, whatever it may be. There are a lot of teams that would be lining at the door for a guy like Russell Wilson to be their quarterback. So he's in the ultimate, uh, you know, position of power because not only does he have the agent dynamic you just talked about, the short term deals. But guess what? All of his play and all of his talent backs up all of it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, here's the thing. He's going to be able to try to push the bar even higher than it already is. He's going to have a chance to push it past Patrick Mahomes. And if anyone does trade for him at some point, they're going to have to balance what they give the Seahawks for Russell Wilson plus what they're willing to pay him because they're most likely going to give him a new contract on the way through the door. But, but back to the original point. This is a very real dynamic where teams engage in that cost-benefit analysis of clinging to a quarterback who is taking up a huge chunk of the salary cap versus rolling the dice on a young guy who they can have for four years, maybe five with the fifth-year option at an affordable rate. And when you look at how much better college quarterbacks are coming into the NFL than they used to be, it's just a matter of time before somebody does it, before somebody says, 
we're just not doing it. It's not just going to be the Bears and Mitch Trubisky when it's obvious they shouldn't pick up the fifth-year option to give him a long-term contract. It's going to be somebody that we look at and say, hey, that guy's pretty good. Why are they not keeping him? And you know what? Big cat in hindsight is probably what the Rams should have done with your guy, Jared Goff. Yeah, you don't have to say that. You, you went a little too far there. You didn't have to say that. You really did. I did have to say it. I no, didn't have to, didn't. but I wanted to. Well, we're okay, going to have what I want to say next. We're going to have these guys coming up, right? Like these guys, the the Baker Mayfield, uh, jo- Josh Rosen, obviously not, but, but Josh Allen, Sam Darnold, Lamar Jackson draft is going to be coming up in the next year. So that will be a very interesting dynamic because you could make a case one way or the other with probably all those guys when it comes to picking up their fifth year option. And the best move for any of these teams to make, the moment the third regular season ends for these guys that they choose to keep, get them signed to a long-term contract then and there. The longer you wait, the more expensive it gets. Just look at what the Cowboys are going through with Dak Prescott. We're going to play a game of what's more likely when Pro Football Talk Live continues right after this. Around any corner, within every battle, and with the dawn of each new day, The threat of the unexpected, the unpredictable, and the unrelenting lies in wait. But Marines will always be there. They are the constant in the chaos. No matter the battlefield, Marines adapt to win, defeating every shifting threat, protecting our nation's future. The few, the proud, the Marines. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. I think schematically the easiest way to describe it to kind of the outside world right now is, you know, it's going to be similarly based off what Jason's done in Dallas for the last 10 or so years. So there's going to be some similarities carried to that, but it's got to cater to our players we have on our roster currently. Joe Judge talking about the new Giants offense with new Giants offensive coordinator Jason Garrett, and people were actually surprised by the fact that the Giants offense is going to look like the Cowboys offense, given that the former Cowboys head coach is now running the offense. So let's play a little what more, what's more likely, Big Cat. What's more likely, the narrative around Jason Garrett as the Giants OC will be same old boring offense or offensive coordinator Garrett is better than head coach Garrett. I'll go with the former here, just knowing the New York Giants fan base, because if he slips up at all, If we see anything that's even close to the Cowboys boring Jason Garrett, I think that fan base will be controlling the narrative and be down his throat immediately. So he doesn't have a lot of leash here. And I'm going to, so I'll go with the former when you're talking about the narrative. Now, what it actually will be, maybe he'll have a better, he'll do a better job now that he's the OC and not head coach. 
But in terms of narrative and what people talk about, I think it's going to be hard for him to shake what happened at Dallas the last couple of years with those weapons and, and the disappointment they had year in and year out. And I agree with you, and here's my twist on it. The reality is it's going to take some time to get the offense to where it eventually will be. Football fans and media members like to lock into their narratives for the full season early on, and then we don't like to revisit it because that requires effort that we don't want to necessarily put into it. It's easier to just cling to that crutch that we've been waving around for you know, half of the year, let's go ahead and finish the season, even if they're scoring 70 points a game. Now, if they become an Arena Football League offense, narratives will have to change. But I think that will be the narrative initially, and it's going to be incumbent on the Giants to change it. But, you know, with Saquon Barkley, who we agreed the other day is better than Ezekiel Elliott, and when he's healthy, he is phenomenal. This could be an intriguing offense. The offensive line, though, is going to have to step up and be something relatively in the same ballpark as what Jason Garrett had in Dallas. All right, what's more likely? You got something else to add? Well, I, was I, say, I didn't. I didn't agree that Saquon Barkley is is better than Ezekiel Elliott. I didn't agree. Oh, with I don't that. care. I don't okay. care. Well, you said I we. Care. I don't care. I just want people that. to know I'm not ready to do that yet. Well, Peter King, Chris Sims, and I all said that Saquon Barkley is better than Ezekiel Elliott. And if you say otherwise, you're the guy who threw seven interceptions last night playing college football video game. You have no credibility on this topic. Next That's up, a fiesta Andy, here title. comes the French That's press. That's a fiesta bowl and- title. <laughs> Andy Dalton is the Dallas Week 1 starter this year, or Jordan Love is the Green Bay Week 1 starter next year. What's more likely? Mm, that's a good question. I would say more likely Jordan Love is the Green Bay starter next year. I don't see – they. the Cowboys are going to sign Dak, right? I mean, there's, there's just no way that's not going to happen. Well, but the thing is, and I tried to get Stephen Jones last Friday to address the reality that Dak Prescott has a ton of leverage. $31.4 million that he's due to make this year. Next year, that increases by 20% to $37.68 million. Basically, you have to give him an offer on a long-term deal that gets him to say, I'll trade in what I otherwise could make year by year over the next two years. I mean, this is Kirk Cousins on steroids, frankly. Cousins made 20 and 24. This is 31-4 and 37-6-8 with a shot at the open market in the third year because it it skyrockets to $54.25 million to tag him under the franchise tag for a third time. So the point is this. If the Cowboys don't put enough on the table to get Dak Prescott to trade in the year-to-year approach, and he chooses after that to stay away from training camp in the preseason, and he blows through the doors a week before the start of the regular season like Le'Veon Bell did in 2017, what's Mike McCarthy going to do? Is he going to say, well, we'll go ahead and use the guy that just showed up at quarterback, or we'll use the guy who's been our quarterback throughout training camp and whatever preseason they have? And that's going to be a real question for Mike McCarthy. I still think it's more likely Jordan Love starts week one for the Packers next year. But the idea that Andy Dalton would start week one for the Cowboys if Dak Prescott shows up five days before week one is not ludicrous. Okay, yeah, that's a compelling point. I'll I'll concede that it was a compelling point. I won't say that you're right, but I'll concede that it was a compelling point. We'll know by July 15. And, And if a deal gets done July 15, it's all academic. If it doesn't, then the question becomes, will Dak Prescott exercise his right under the rules of the franchise tag Rules that the Cowboys initiated by tagging him to stay away from everything until just before the start of the season and still get the full $31.4 million. All right, what's more likely? More specifically, who's more likely to pull a Teddy Bridgewater off the bench this year? Jameis Winston or Mitchell Trubisky? Uh, That would be Mitchell Trubisky, and I think that that's the easy answer here because why why are we we saying that it's totally uh, done, especially as a backup? 
I mean, come on. He could be a great backup. He could be the guy who comes in with no pressure and no one's expecting anything out of him. And I think that that's a lot of what would uh, Mitch's issues have been has been between the ears and that pressure and, and, and not seeing the field the correct way. I think if he has no pressure and he's put in a situation where he has to come in and hopefully help the team out, I expect him to be a different type of guy. And I'm not saying he's a franchise quarterback. I'm not saying he's a starting quarterback. But I'm talking about in the situation of a backup quarterback and being a you know taking the pressure off of everything that's kind of piled on in the last few years. I think you'll see a different guy under center than uh, you have in the past four years. Have you uh, put a little scratch on Mitch Trubisky at two fifty to one for MVP? Three years. Three years put seems like four years. Uh, right. But but yeah, answer maybe. the question. Sure, I'll do it. All right, I'll uh, do that. I think I it's more like I, I think it's more likely to be now. When we say pull the Teddy uh, Teddy Bridgewater, that doesn't just mean play. That co- that means come in and play well. Uh, Nick Foles, yeah. we have to look at his history and think maybe he's going to get hurt and Trubisky will get a chance. I, I could see Jameis doing exactly what happened last year. Look, Drew Brees is 41. They're talking about restricting his throws on Thursday. He doesn't have the deep ball in his arsenal anymore. Uh, you know, one hit for him or for Tom Brady is going to potentially put them on the sideline for an extended stretch. I'm going to go with Jameis Winston. That's why Jameis Winston picked that team. He knows it's a chance for him to resurrect his career playing for Sean Payton and possibly getting himself in position for the same kind of contract Teddy got from the Panthers three years, 66 million. All right. What's more likely Tom Brady and Bruce Arians are kumbaya all year, or we get at least one feisty sideline interaction caught on camera. I think, by the way, just one last point about Teddy Bridgewater. I, you know, he played well, but it wasn't like he was lights out. He has a pretty talented team around him, so I think the the bar to be to get in there and, and keep the ship afloat when you have that kind of talent around you is a little different. So maybe my answer is Jameis. All right. So this question, I think they will stay kumbaya because Bruce Arians is a quarterback coach. He's an offensive coach. And he is the opposite of Bill Belichick. And I'm not going to say that Bill Belichick and Tom Brady hated each other because I do not think that's the case. I think it's just a case of after so many years being together and so many years of success, eventually it's just going to have to be a split. Um, But I do think that Bruce Arians will have a closer relationship with with Tom Brady like immediately, right? It's going to be a friendlier relationship than more of a professional relationship that might have happened in New England. I think they will be kumbaya all season long. Yeah, I agree with you. And this is a topic because it was earlier this week that Gary Myers reported that there was some sort of friction strain between Tom Brady and Patriots offensive coordinator Josh McDaniels. Brady has rejected that. Sims and I harmonized the various threads by saying, look, Brady was just tired of the Patriot way, and Josh McDaniels is part of the Patriot way, and there is going to be friction among members of the Patriots organization from time to time when you feel constrained and constricted and not appreciated for the things that you've done. Bruce Arians is going to love Tom Brady because he's not Jameis Winston, period. He's on cloud nine. And the other side of it, too, is I don't want to say Bruce Arians is in semi-retirement, but 
he is entrusting a lot of the duties to his assistant coaches, like offensive coordinator Byron Leftwich. So if there's going to be any friction, it's going to be yeah. between Leftwich and Brady. It's not going to be Arians. He's going to be, he's going to be kind of sitting back, taking it all in, and enjoying the view and watching the yards pile up, and not the interceptions this year. So I think Arians is going to be happy with uh, with the situation all year, and Brady will be happy because he has gotten out of the Patriot Way prison, the thing that <laughs> left him feeling like he never was really appreciated and paid and honored the way that he should have been, Big Cat. I'd actually predict that you will see one of those uh, friction moments on the sideline between Tom Brady and Byron Leftwich for everything you just mentioned. Bruce Arians is probably going to say, let Tom Brady make the final decisions here. Let him. He knows how to run an offense. He has six Super Bowl rings. He's going to probably embolden both guys, which never works. So that would be where the friction happens. And, of course, it will not be. We'll blow it up. We'll make it be, seem bigger than it is. But that's just what happens in, in the heat of the battle. But, yeah, Bruce Arians and Tom Brady will be kumbaya all year. Or Big Cat, consider this. It could be that Byron Leftwich is so deferential to Tom Brady that Brady never gets upset. Leftwich is younger than Brady. He entered the league three years after Brady, and he was never anything close. Now, he was good, but he wasn't Tom Brady from a quarterback standpoint. And I think if Brady has a thought, has an idea – Leftwich's best play will be not to push back, but to say, good idea, Tom. Let's do what you think we should do. All right, let's take a quick break when we return. Matthew Stafford met with reporters on Thursday virtually. We'll talk about some of the things he had to say when PFC Live continues right after this. I'd rather be in person. I'd rather be in Detroit. Um, you know, if we could be, um, you know, talking about this stuff and then going out and working on it. Um, the biggest thing, you know, the biggest difference right now is we're all talking about it and then you know, we hang up the Zoom call and I go chase three kids and, you know, Danny goes and does yoga in his underwear or whatever and Kenny's catching balls from a jugs. I don't know what these guys are doing, but we're not working on the same stuff at the same time. You know, it was just a matter of time before teams started putting up sponsorship logos virtually behind these players who are doing the Zoom conference calls. Smart move. I'm surprised it took so long. I'd rather look at what's actually behind Matthew Stafford not the the big blue sheet with the Lions logo and the sponsorship logo. But, hey, this is an opportunity to make a little scratch, and I suspect more and more teams will do it. But, hey, the bottom line is guys are trying to get ready for the season. They're working out alone. Eventually, they'll find a way to work out together. And there's a lot of pressure, Big Cat, on the Lions this year. Martha Ford, the owner of the team, made it clear last season when she said GM Bob Quinn and Coach Matt Patricia are coming back that she expects – something better this year than what she's gotten. And Stafford's injury last year had a lot to do with the team's failures. But there's a lot of pressure on Stafford. There's a lot of pressure on the coaching staff. There's a lot of pressure on the front office. And they started off fairly well last year. They won some games that past Lions teams would have lost. But, you know, my mindset with the Lions organization, given where they've been pretty much my entire lifetime of watching football, they're going to have to prove it to me before I sign on. Oh, you're changing your tune from my famous clip last fall when I said that you could uh, you could always sleep on the lines and never wake up, and then you took great umbrage to that comment. That's not what Turns I said. Out- That's not what I said. My point is they're going to have to wake me up. I, I am uh. going to sleep on them until they wake me up, but I will, I will be happy. I will be ready. I will be prepared for the nudge on the shoulder to come when Matt Patricia says, wake up, we're five and two. I, I'm not writing them off but I'm not going to buy into any hype or any speculation that they're going to be halfway decent this year unless they are. 
The biggest story here, I think, is Matt Stafford's uh, back injury because he's one of the toughest guys in the NFL. He's, you know, he doesn't miss games. He he played through a ton of different injuries. So the fact that he did miss a game or, and missed a lot of games means that that injury was very, very significant. And what will be the lasting effect? You know, he's on the wrong side of 30. A back injury doesn't just go away. It's not something like a like a broken bone that will eventually heal and you'll be 100%. So that is the biggest question mark with the Lions going forward because for them to be any type of decent, they need Matt Stafford to be really, really good. And he was really good at the beginning of last year before he got that injury. Yeah, you know, as Tony Romo got closer and closer to the inevitable end of his career because of back problems, Troy Aikman said repeatedly, I didn't retire early because of concussions. I retired early because of back injuries issues so we need to watch that with Matthew Stafford he's still fairly young even though he's been around for a long time how much longer will we be in Detroit and can he stay healthy this year big questions for the Lions let's take a break when we return troubling news involving a Giants defensive back and a Seahawks defensive back we'll get you up to speed on that when Pro Football Talk Live resumes One of the realities of not having a full-blown off-season program, players are left to their own devices, and for some players, that can become problematic. Giants cornerback DeAndre Baker, a first-round pick in 2019, for whom the Giants traded up, and Seahawks cornerback Quentin Dunbar, traded from Washington earlier this year. They each face four counts of armed robbery with a firearm. Baker also faces four counts of aggravated assault with a firearm. According to the Miramar, Florida Police Department, they were at a private party on Wednesday, Baker drew a semi-automatic firearm, and with Baker directing, Dunbar helped collect more than $11,000 in cash, an $18,000 Rolex, a $25,000 watch, a $17,500 watch, and other valuables. At one point, Baker allegedly ordered another armed man to shoot someone who had walked into the party. That man did not comply with the order to fire the shot. Now, uh, how this all plays out, we shall see. Both players have not yet turned themselves in. Many developments to come. The league obviously is monitoring, and we will keep you updated as events warrant. There is plenty more Pro Football Talk Live still to come on this Friday morning. We'll be back with more right after this. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.